I'm going to read a text that I'd ask that you join with me in reading the second half of the first chapter of Revelation. And uh, then I want to talk a little bit about the book as a whole, and then we'll, we're going to break down the passage. And my hope is that when I'm done, you'll have a, a desire to read the book. So that's, that's a big part of my goal for you today. Uh, let's jump into the middle of chapter 1, verse 9. These are God's very words. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I'm the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you've seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Let's pray. Lord, help us to understand and internalize what you reveal in this magnificent text that you've given us as a gift so that we can live in this world according to the way you created us and redeemed us. So work in us, each one of us now, as we hear these words proclaimed. We ask you in Jesus' name, amen. Somewhere along my life's journey, the book of Revelation fell out of my Bible. My aunt gave me, when I was a teenager, she gave me a copy of The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey. To say the book was popular is an understatement. The New York Times ranks it as 
the best-selling nonfiction book of the 1970s. The book told me that if I looked carefully at biblical prophecy, I would see that everything in Ezekiel and Daniel and Zechariah and Revelation was playing out right now on the world stage, right then, in 1972. Soviet Russia was going to invade Israel at the invitation of the hostile Arab nations. The book made some pretty amazing claims about the beasts and the dragon and the prostitute depicted in Revelation. It was the early 1970s. It was a crazy time, just like today. I remember my pastor holding up his Bible and saying, I read my Bible, I read my New York Times. They're saying the same thing. Well, in hindsight, we recognized that things didn't turn out exactly like how Lindsay said they would. And as I began to take a deeper look at the Bible, I realized that there were a lot of different ways to look at the book of Revelation. Some said that it was only about the events in the first century. Some said that it was only about the time just before Jesus returns. Some said that it symbolized every age in history. And some said that it played out like a history book. You could read it from page to page about how the world was going to unfold. And I, I, I learned all this, and I was just, I was confused. And it was at that time that Revelation fell out of my Bible. About ten years ago, I took another look and I realized that I was focusing on all the wrong things. The central character in the book is not the beast or the dragon or the prostitute. The central character of the book is Jesus. What really matters according to the book of Revelation, what the book reveals is Jesus. Jesus and Jesus' work in the world, especially through local churches. The book wasn't written to individuals to puzzle out the future. The book, the book was written for churches, just like ours. During the... Oh, so what goes on in Babylon or Rome or Washington, D.C., that may have an effect on us, but what really matters is how we live for Jesus in our local churches. That's what's important today in a crazy period of history. During the events of 2020, people have asked me if I'm going to preach on the pandemic or on the riots and racism in America or on the election. I've preached on none of it. Why not? Because all these events are a sideshow to the main event. <laughs> What's the main event? Jesus is returning to set things right. And before that happens, he's put his people in local churches. He's put his people in local churches so we can witness to the reality of his rule and his righteous judgment and his gospel of salvation. We're not going to endure these times because the right guy got in office 
or the right policies were put in place. We're going to endure through these times by looking at Jesus Christ. That's how we're going to endure. We're going to endure because we realize he's looking at us to protect us and to purify us. Here's what Revelation does to you. Here's what Revelation has done to me. As you look at Jesus, you not only see him, you begin to see the world through his eyes. And you see yourself as you fit into the world through his eyes. It is transformative. As the writer of Hebrews calls us to be looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, we get a right perspective as we look to him. We get a right perspective on our lives and the world around us. Everything starts to fade a little bit in importance and seriousness. We call the book Revelation, or we call it the Revelation to John, but in fact, what it is is what exactly chapter 1, verse 1 says. The revelation of Jesus Christ. I should tell you what the book's about. This is the first words. He is the source of the revelation, and he is its focus. So our passage today begins with John telling us how he came to see what this book uncovers. And what he sees as our text progresses is Jesus. In seeing Jesus, he can receive his commission to write down the vision. So it opens with John seeing the Lord Jesus Christ. The first point I want to make from this text, from verses 9 and 10, is that John is writing to seven churches from exile. Look at verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. We don't know exactly who John, the the writer of the book, is. The early church fathers thought he was the apostle John, and he may very well be. Or he could be another John, someone who lived for Jesus and suffered persecution for his loyalty to Jesus, someone deeply immersed in the Bible, as we're going to see. Our understanding of the book is not affected by identifying who John is. John identifies himself as your brother and partner in the tribulation and kingdom and patient endurance. So he's writing to family. And together, they're going to go through some hard times. John characterizes their common experience with the words tribulation, kingdom, and patient endurance. We can't stop there. Tribulation, kingdom, and patient endurance that are in Jesus. That's where you want to experience tribulation. That's where you want to find endurance in Jesus. Jesus' kingdom, his rule, comes, as we read the book, comes ironically through suffering. (laughs) In Acts 14, Luke records Paul saying that through many hardships we enter the kingdom of God. That's the upside-down kingdom we're a part of, is that if you want to enter the kingdom, it's going to involve 
suffering. You choose to endure suffering because you are identified with Jesus. This is what makes them brothers and sisters and connects them as a family. They follow their king knowing that to see the kingdom fully realized, they must be patient, even patient when mistreated. In this age, for Jesus' people, conquering is not dominating enemies by winning elections or enacting better laws. Conquering means enduring hardship without compromise. John notes that he receives this revelation while on the island called Patmos. Patmos was an island off the western coast of what we today call Turkey, where the Romans would exile troublemakers. It wasn't technically a prison. Exiles could live as they pleased on the island. They just couldn't leave. John was there on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. John was there because of his stubborn refusal to be silenced regarding God's word about his son and king, Jesus Christ. That's what got him there. In verse 10, John says that he was in the spirit on the Lord's day. That would be the day we call Sunday, the first day of the week. For the early Christians, just as for us, the resurrection day of the Lord is when they gathered for worship. I can imagine John was lonely and missing God's people. It's not clear what John means by being in the Spirit, but the phrase is evocative of how Ezekiel repeatedly describes the source of his prophetic messages. So that's, that's the situation of John on the island of Patmos. Number two, we see what John sees. John sees Jesus Christ. Sees Jesus. I have prayed many times that I could see what he saw in this text. It starts with hearing a voice like a trumpet. Trumpets precede announcements in the ancient world. They tell people to pay attention. There's an important message. In verse 11, John is told to write in a book what he sees. Revelation is unique among the New Testament books. It has more in common with the Old Testament books, Daniel and Zechariah and Ezekiel. What John sees are not actual events as they might appear when they actually happen, but symbolic events. This is not to take away anything from their reality. It just uses depictions to help us understand their significance when they do come to pass. Just as the word revelation, or it comes from a Greek word that we also know, apocalypse, it means to uncover something hidden. The events of this book uncover the heavenly realities of events that happen on the earth. John is told to send this book of visions to seven churches. These are seven churches in the Roman province of Asia, what today we call Turkey. Scholars puzzle, why these seven? There were a lot of other churches in that area. Certainly the number seven is significant. As you see in the letters to these seven churches, each applies to all churches. It's not clear why these seven in particular. One tantalizing fact is that each of these cities 
had a temple dedicated to emperor worship. As John turns in the direction of the voice, he sees a man like a son of man. That's language echoing Daniel chapter 7. If you knew your Bible well, you'd say, oh, I know exactly where that's coming from. This son of man is walking among seven oil lamps. Before we learn about the meaning of the lamps, we learn about this son of man. We get eight descriptors. This is not a literal physical description. That's obvious when we see a mouth with a sword protruding out of it. As Grant Osborne writes, John's aim is to set the echoes of memory and association ringing. So you want to know your Bible so well that when you hear phrases and you see things, it it immediately brings to your mind, oh yes, I know where that is. I've heard that. I've seen that before. Each designation of Jesus brings to mind the temple and the prophecies, especially of Daniel, but also of Ezekiel and Isaiah. It's clearly a reference to a messianic deliverer. We don't have time today to explore each Old Testament allusion. I wish we did. Let me instead help you hear these words as the members of these churches would have heard them. His robe and sash, in verse 13, would have reminded them of the high priest in the temple or of a high governing official in their day. Jesus dresses as a priest king. In verse 14, his hair of pure white speaks to deep wisdom from deep experience. The language is almost identical to Daniel's description of the Ancient of Days, the great heavenly ruler who killed the evil beast who sought to destroy the whole earth. His eyes were like flame of fire. In Daniel's vision, in Daniel chapter 10, he sees a heavenly deliverer with eyes like flaming torches. This person walking among the lamps can see through anything. He's a judge who's never deceived. He sees what's there. In verse 15, his feet are like burnished bronze. They are refined in a furnace. His feet depict the direction of his actions. He goes in strength and purity. Nothing stops him in his steps, and his ways are all righteous and pure. Again in verse 15, his voice is like the roar of many waters. Here we have echoes of Ezekiel. He speaks with power and with strength. In verse 16, in his right hand, he holds seven stars. He not only controls events on earth, he holds the heavenlies in his hands and controls all things in heaven and on earth. In verse 16, a sharp two-edged sword like the one a Roman soldier would use. These people would have had an image in their mind. That sword proceeds from his mouth. In Isaiah 11, we learn of a righteous deliverer from the kingly line of David who will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will kill 
the wicked. And the servant of the Lord later in Isaiah 49 says, He made my mouth like a sharp sword. As Greg Beale writes, Jesus will do battle in this manner, not only against the evil nations, but against, also against all those among the churches who compromise their faith. Or as Paul wrote in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he proclaims judgment with the breath of his mouth. His words have the power to accomplish what he proclaims. He just has to say it, and it comes to pass. And then finally, in verse 16, his face was like the sun shining in full strength. I was thinking of this verse. I was outside the other day, and the sun was shining on me in full strength, no clouds, and I tried staring into it, which I've been taught not to do since I was a little boy, but I, I tried, and I thought, Oh my goodness, you, you really can't. You can't stare at the sun. <laughs> Maybe some can... Well, let's not go there. His face shining, this brings to mind Jesus when he was transfigured before three, the three disciples or Moses coming down from the mountain after receiving the law from God. At the sight of this astounding person, John falls down. Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. He collapses. Now, this is not an unusual experience when a human being has an overwhelming, experiences an overwhelming event, like, like an earthquake or a tsunami that's coming at you, standing before an invading army. John fell down. He fainted. It looked like he died. That's what happens when you encounter Jesus Christ like John did. The Son of Man reaches down with his right hand, the hand of his power, the hand that holds the seven stars, and tells John, fear not. In the presence of such a person, someone dazzling in his righteousness and purity, someone towering over him in his power, someone who can see right through you, there is much reason to fear. There's reason to fear his judgment, to fear his wrath. Beyond his touch, the Son of Man tells John at the end of verse 17 that he is the first and the last. As you proceed into chapter 2, this becomes a key point. He began all things, he's present with all things, and he will bring all things to their appointed end as the living one he is eternal he was he is he will be and he has proved his power by conquering the one thing that threatens every human being look at verse 18 
I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. He died and then lived to live forevermore, and now he has absolute power to determine when a person dies and what their experience will be in the land of the dead called Hades. Greg Beale again writes that the Son of Man reached out like this to assure John and his readers that Christ is in control of the vicissitudes of history, however bad they seem. Indeed, he is the force behind history, causing it to fulfill his purposes. You may think your life is out of control. You may think your country's out of control. Oh no. The one who holds death in his hands knows how this is turning out. And he's behind every bit of it. So John can be assured that his exile and the tribulations experienced by the seven churches are all a part of God's sovereign plan. And so number three, Jesus commissions John in verses 19 and 20. In verse 19, Jesus repeats his instructions to write down what he sees. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. The next two chapters describe what's going on in seven churches, and then chapter 4 begins with after this, and it describes things that take place after that. I think we can summarize the intent of the verse by saying that what John has seen is the inauguration of what the Bible calls the last days, the time before Jesus' return. What John has seen in verse 19 would be a repetition of the instructions he heard in verse 11. He's to record everything that he sees. Some of the things he sees are current to his time, as you see in chapters 2 and 3. Some come after that, as revealed in chapters 4 through 22. When we learn in verse 20 that the seven lamps represent the seven churches listed in verse 11, and we see seven stars that Jesus holds in his hands and that they're the angels of the seven churches, we get assurance of his personal, particular care and concern for churches. These angels, this is fascinating. These angels both represent the churches. So they're they're like church members. You've never met them. But there's an angel who's, who's got you. They also not only represent the churches, they intervene to help the churches. They are identified with these churches. So these churches already participate in a heavenly reality. These churches are lamps. They bring light to the world, the light of Jesus and his gospel. And they bring this light to the world through their worship and their witness. John is exiled from worship on the Lord's day, the day of this vision. Throughout the book, we hear heaven at worship. This is a major theme of the book. These churches and their angels participate in a heavenly reality. Listen, it, you've heard this from your pastors a lot, but I think the evangelical church lost something in the way we conceived of 
gathering on the Lord's Day to worship. Right now, in this place, we are participating in a heavenly reality. We enter into a higher time. Not a show. Not a thing the pastors put together to keep you on the right track. We are joining with all of heaven. Our high priest Jesus is leading us into a temple, a heavenly temple, in the worship of the one true God. That's what's going on in Revelation. That's what's going on right now in this place. Greg Beale writes, one of the purposes of the church meeting on earth in its weekly gatherings is to be reminded of its heavenly existence and identity by modeling its worship of the exalted Lamb. So what we're doing here is we're, we're modeling what's going on in heaven so the, the rest of the world can come and see that, hey, this is the real reality. This is what's important. This is what it's all about. As you see in chapters 2 and 3, these seven churches are all under attack of one sort or another. What gives them endurance to suffer persecution and what steals their spines to reject temptation is seeing Jesus Christ in worship. We must see him as John reveals him to us. We must see him and worship. This is what will keep us in all the frightening and confusing events of our day. That's why I'm not preaching on a lot of these topics, because they're the sideshows. The call is to see Jesus in the midst of it all. And so number four, what does Jesus say? John collapses. He's terrified. Jesus says, do not fear. That's the call church that's the call to all of us here do not fear do not fear jesus wrath all your sins are forgiven sins do not fear the world you are defended by the one who conquered death and hades there's a lot to fear in our country right now I had a friend recently asked me, he said, you know, you were like alive in the 60s. I said, oh yeah. He said, yeah, it was kind of a crazy time. I said, yeah, I didn't know any better. I thought it was kind of normal. But somebody might say to you someday, you were alive back in the 20s, you know, 2020. Oh yeah. There's a lot to fear. There's lots of reasons to have fear. But if you know and you see and you keep before you the one who holds history in his hand, the one who walks among his churches, both protecting them and purifying them, you can fear not. You can be at rest. You can be joyful. And that's what this text does. This book looks at the church getting hammered. And yet it shows us that despite all the challenges, both of persecution and the seductions of this world, Jesus Christ is ruling. And he's being worshipped in heaven, and he invites us to join with him. All he says to us, you want to conquer? Just endure. Endure with me. Continue to keep your witness. You don't have to conquer anybody. You just have to be faithful to me. That's the call of this 
text is to see Jesus. That's the call of this book. That's the call on you in this day is to see Jesus Christ as he's revealed to you in the Word of God. Let's pray. Lord, we, we are distracted by many things and we get upset about things. We hear rumors of this and that and the other thing and they're all contradicting each other. We have rulers who act like fools. There's a disease. We don't know what to think about it. I pray, Lord, for every one of us in this room, we would take our eyes off the things of this earth and see Jesus. See the one with hair like wool in all his wisdom, with a face that shines so bright you have to turn away for the brightness. The one with feet that are burnished bronze. The one who holds heaven in his hands. The one who speaks with a sword that divides truth from falsehood. A sword that makes righteous judgments, separating the wicked from the righteous. Help us to see Jesus, we pray. Through him and in his name, Father. Amen.